0: Hey guys, this is episode number 90 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. Well, welcome to the show guys. I hope you appreciated my improved facial expression. I don't know how many seconds there are before the little intro, but I was smiling for you so I didn't have the, the resting bitch face, so I better appreciate that. How are you guys doing? Good to be back. hope you've had a great uh, week so far. We tried to do this on Monday. I got stuck at the airport and it meant that I had to push this back and... Lovely Bay agreed to do this today, which I'm grateful for. And I'm excited to talk to her in a second. What's been going on, man? I've had a tough, uh, tough, uh, couple of days. Feel like I'm in a bit of a breakdown, but, uh, it's okay. I feel well supported. I have uh, a great uh, support network around me and it's kind of part of playing a bigger game. Like this year has been pretty crazy and you know, like trying to upgrade my business and my life and everything. And you know, sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's, you know, puts you into a breakdown and you know for me my mind plays a lot of tricks on me and so although i kind of know logically that who i am and and what i'm capable of and i can think about all that logically my mind tries to convince me that i'm not good enough and that i suck and that i've done everything wrong and that you know life is really shitty i can sort of go into this victim mode so i've kind of been stuck there for the last wee while i feel like i'm starting to come out of it but i just wanted to share that i know like You know, my life is really cool and it looks really cool from the outside and I travel lots and there's lots of nice pictures, but there's a lot of times like now where I just can't see the wood for the trees. It feels like a real battle. And so it's really important for me to share that with you guys and let you know, you know, the other side of things that you can have an extraordinary life and you can have a really cool existence and create things and still feel shitty or not good enough or you know, not have the ability to find joy in it, you know, which is something I struggle with. But no need to worry about me. Send me love. That's great. I, I feel well supported, but it's just important for me to share that. spent the last week in Montreal with my family, which was really cool. I haven't seen them since the start of the year. So I had a really amazing time with them. Big wedding, lots of fun. My family loves to drink. So I was hung over for like eight and <laughs> possibly still am. We can't confirm that. Uh, but it was cool. It was nice to spend time with family. Cause living overseas, you know, you start to cherish that time even more. So on with the show, let me introduce you to my friend, Bay. Bay's brand of executive leadership coaching combines radical honesty and leadership acumen with a hefty dash of magic and possibility, which I love. Uh, her company, Wonderland and company supports high achieving driven leaders to create the impossible and enjoy the ride all at the same time. She's a firm believer in why not, and her own background includes professional dance and theater training, an MBA in service management, uh, working as an RCMP officer, which I'm excited to talk about. That's just to name a few of her adventures. Uh, she's now writing a book about being driven because she knows firsthand what life is like for people who feel like life is never enough to meet their unquenchable desire. And she joins me now. Bay, welcome. Hello. How are you?
1: I'm pretty darn good, actually.
0: That's good. We've known each other for a few years. We got to spend a year together in in a mastermind, get to know each other pretty well. And you are universally loved by everyone. Every time I mention your name or I talk about you, there's such a fondness and such a, I think, such a, a sense of awe about who you are as a person, who you are as a coach. You just create that in people. And
1: let me just preen myself here. Please do. It's So fine. Then, if you want, I can give you some names. That I'm definitely, I know a few people who, who could uh, change that.
0: I don't want that at all. I <laughs> want to just focus on what I said. <laughs>
1: I, I like that better. Yeah.
0: And on cue, uh, Karen said she likes you. I paid her. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, um, that's cool. Well, it worked. She's here. And I'm excited to talk to you because, you know, I think we have a lot of fondness for each other. We have a lot in common. And every time we chat is, you know, I aim to chat for an hour. We end up chatting chatting for like two and a half hours about all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, why not do that in a public forum?
1: (laughs) I agree. Definitely. I think it's, I think that like we're the same person just in slightly different bodies.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. Something that really intrigues me and it's kind of going back to the start a little bit, but you've told me a little bit and I'm not going to get the details right, but you have quite an interesting mix of French, you fill in the blanks for me because there's like some Native American. Yep. Yeah. That was a bit of a journey for you to find all that out, I remember. Yeah. So
1: it's funny because when I was little, I'm like, we're, at what point do I enter this story that it makes sense? So my family's like as French as they come, like all French, and in fact, like I remember my mother telling me, I think, like mostly jokingly, but as to any joke, there's always like a little bit of truth that mm-hmm. if my grandmother was still alive, like she would have been really disappointed that I married an English boy, right? I'm like, yeah, but he did French immersion, so we're fine, he speaks oh, French it's fluently, yeah, yeah, good enough.
0: I know he speaks French fluently because he corrected me on my French a couple of times, did he? Yeah,
1: he will do that, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, so that's on brand,
1: <laughs> it's, yeah, exactly. Just check, um, yeah, so my family is. Um, am French-Canadian on both sides. So on my mom's side of the family, we are like Quebecois, but probably pre it being called Quebec. And then actually, I, mean, I need to see a family tree, but I'm pretty sure that there's Acadian on that side as well. And then on my father's side of the family, I'm Acadian, which are the like the French settlers that came to North America. Like back when Roanoke wasn't working out for people very well in what is now the States. Um, the Acadians did really well actually in when they landed in what is now like Nova Scotia. And so, yeah, that's my heritage from like from a European standpoint. But then the English deported the Acadians rather horrifically, actually, but we mostly gloss over that because the crown wouldn't admit to doing it for 250 years. So, you know, that happened. And then parts of it's not uncommon, but like, so the part of me that would be called like indigenous here, I'm Métis and that means that there's like been mixed like marriages I like find myself catching like what's the politically correct word for this <laughs> because there's no politically correct word and I've been reading Harry Potter because I have other things I need to read so now I'm like mudblood no don't say that doesn't work. Um, but like where French settlers married like indigenous people and then their offspring like are called the Métis and that that is its own like actual group of indigenous people and we were uh-huh. yeah and and it's hilarious because there's like Métis and then there's other Métis and then they fight because you cannot get people to, like you can't even get marginalized people to get along. No, I get yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah, so that is my history. And it's really funny because I didn't know that I was Métis until I was 28 years old. And my dad told me because I grew up estranged from my, my father's side of the family. And I'm not laughing at that. That's not funny. That's no, no just sure. history. But he said, he's like, didn't you ever wonder why your skin was so dark? That's me doing the accent for you guys. You're welcome. And the best part was I was like, yes. When I was little, I was so sure that I was adopted because in my family, everyone is quite fair. Like their skin is lighter than mine and they all have blue eyes, all mm-hmm. of them. And then there's me. And in this, like when I was a child and like was outside all the time and sunscreen wasn't invented yet, I literally like my skin color matched my hair color. And so I made up a story that my father was actually like some like Arabian prince or sheik, And that had to be like, I had to have been adopted because my skin and like, I just happened to be, I take more after my father's like side of the family, I guess, in terms of like looks and coloring. Mm -hmm. And so it was really funny because I was like, I did think that my skin was darker, but that's not where I went with it so
0: yeah this is so fascinating to me and I just remember you you sharing this with me a few times but how is that how did it impact you finding out about that stuff
1: well so first of all I have my first degree was anthropology so I am like literally fascinated in the Uh, like journey and passage of humanity through time so um it is interesting when you have read history like I took enough history in my undergrad to have majored in it in fact they tried to get me to but I was like I see your tricks no um (laughs) But when you have read history and then find out after that, like as a independent third party reading it the same way I might read about like the history in China, which is, you know, not that relevant to me because it's not my history. And then suddenly to realize after the fact that, that that is your history and to be in that place of like, should I care more or am I an imposter because like I didn't grow up this way. It's a very interesting place to find yourself when you suddenly realize your history has changed.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, you know, countries that we're from, like, we know the British history pretty well, but a lot of that stuff is not that obvious or not that well taught.
1: For so many reasons, right? Like, one, they're just not in a place where that, like, that has been taught, like, or it's been actively suppressed, which is what has happened, I think, in both of our countries. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, it's really fascinating to me. um, I'm really proud of it. Like, I think that's something to be really proud of. And I think... Part of the reason I didn't know is because, for a lot of history, that wasn't something to be proud of right if you could yeah if you could pass, you would then act like you'd try to pass right like you didn't own that, and there's I mean to this day, people like to pretend that Canada is this wonderful, perfect place, and it's pretty damn close on I think mm. and like we have racism, we have violence, we have lots of problems. And when you look at especially indigenous segments of the population, we got a lot of work to do in terms of like raising everyone up to an equal footing. Yeah. So it's a, it's an interesting thing. And I find for myself, like I'm, I'm often like really hesitant to own that part of me because I think someone's going to say like, no, you weren't really. Mm right? Or you're not enough. Or, you know, it's funny because people like we, I'm on the west coast of Canada. The weather's really lovely for Canadian standards. And so like, if you're going to be homeless, this is the place in Canada to be homeless year round. And there are unfortunately a lot of Indigenous people who, they may not necessarily be homeless, but they are downtown and on the margins of society. And it's funny because some of them I've talked to and they they just assumed that I was like Indigenous and knew it but just indigenous from a different part of Canada because the physical features can vary so wildly. So it's just really fascinating, or like just where people are like, oh, I assume. Or the fact that anywhere I go in the world, this was probably a good tell. Anywhere I go in the world, people think I am from there. And so like, if I'm talking, when we were in Cuba, they assumed that I was Cuban. And then they would speak very quickly in Spanish and I would do this. And yeah, or like people from Egypt have thought that I am Egyptian. Like it doesn't, I would have been a great spy. If I yeah. was looking for a different career and wasn't afraid of, you know, guns.
0: I, uh, when I was in Greece last year, they said I look Greek. So a lot of people just started talking to me in Greek.
1: Huh. Yeah. Do you have Greek in your family?
0: Zero. I'm <gasps> like, uh, my, I did the ancestry DNA test and I was like, oh, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to find out that I've got this like Middle Eastern background or like, you know, something scandalous in there. And it just came back and it just said like, you are fucking white. Like you're so fucking white. There's nothing.
1: What there's nothing. You there. didn't have any
0: secret. No, show. it was just like Irish, Scottish, English. Huh.
1: Yeah. Well, it's so funny because I think that's really interesting on a thousand levels because often I think more most like I when like, what if I find out? I don't know what I don't know. What if I find out I'm not French or something, which seems weird and strange. But like, I think it's less common to find out that like, oh, actually, I like really came from a fairly isolated gene pool. I could nerd out about this stuff forever, by the way. fascinating. So <laughs> yeah,
0: I did it like when we were in, you know, you and I had some time together in London, and right after that trip, I went on a bit of a genealogy tour. So I went right up, found some grave sites in Scotland from one side of the family, then went to Dublin and did did a similar thing. And I just totally got into it, like really geeked out on it.
1: Do you know why? Do you know like what it was that appealed to you about it?
0: I think it's a sense of, it's a good question. I'm not sure. Like something about the sense of belonging. Like it was cool (laughs) to be in Scotland in this little town called Dunkeld and go, wow, like in this gravesite is my DNA. I'm not sure if that's how DNA works, but <laughs> I came from this person that yeah. is buried underneath me. That's insane. So like I am as much Scottish in this regard as anybody else here. I can go to right. Ireland or the southwest of England and feel the same thing. And it's just, it's one of those things like, you know, when you think about space or the universe for too long, you kind of like keep yourself tied up in knots. Well, I do anyway. The same thing for me is with genealogy. As I start going back, I'm like, wow. And if he didn't, marry her, then I wouldn't be here. And what And what about and that, and that? And then they came on the yeah. boat to New Zealand and that, and if that didn't happen and a bunch of people died on that boat, you know, I start to just, it just fascinates me that yeah. the chances of me being here because of these thousands of people copulating is extraordinary.
1: It's like infinitesimally small, the odds of you being here. I actually did yeah. a talk on this, I think before you were Before we were in 4PC together, I did this like super nerdy geeky talk about it because and the the odds like require so many zeros that you can't even like the exponential Uh, odds are astronomically not in your favor. And yet we like walk around in life having the audacity to be like, as you were saying at the beginning, right? Like I'm not good enough or like this is shitty or whatever, instead of like honestly trying to like lift up our jaws on the fact that like we made it because I don't know how many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who went before managed to reproduce before catching a cold that would kill them. Yeah. Or like cutting their die, foot, getting an infection and dying. Yeah. That's amazing. I can, yeah. True. I can like nerd out forever about this stuff.
0: I but know. So f- I,
1: I also think that one of the things, and I think, you know, like you're an adventurer and a seeker, and I'm like a resentful one. Resentful? <laughs> Reticent, maybe. Like I both want the adventure, but I'm like, oh, but what if I hurt myself? As evidenced in Portugal when I broke my foot. I was like, oh, that's what
0: happened. Literally happened.
1: Literally happened. Oh, and I was fine. So there you go. Maybe I don't need to worry about it. I think that part of it is like, one, to take what you were just saying, like we're literally the walking legacy of all of our ancestors, whom we don't know and we'll never know. And I think um, as the world's gotten bigger and smaller, like all at the same time, like I think there is a fascination in understanding where you come from. And like if you're also doing the work to understand what's going on up in this crazy melon, which is crazy most of the time, like I think it is fascinating to understand where you came from, both figuratively and literally. And if you come from a part of the world that was um like colonized later, again, like, well, there's a piece of history that's missing for you to like, I don't know. I think it's important to understand our place. And then we also have to like notice that we can get obsessed with being like stuck. In the past as well.
0: Yeah, like anything, or just go, Well, this is who I am. These were my ancestors, so this is this is who I am. Yeah. One of the things that was really Yeah, power, I was gonna say powerful, and I think it is powerful was uh, noticing that my mom left Canada when she was twenty five to move to New Zealand. Her father left New Zealand to move to Canada when he was twenty five. His father left Ireland to move to Canada when he was twenty five. And there's huh. like this this like the fifth generation. Of leaving the home country and kind of going off exploring, and yeah. I'm like, wow, that's incredible. There's there's whole families in you know the UK and Ireland that have never left the town that they live in, and yet something in my genes says, hey, go exploring. Like yeah. grow up, you know, reach maturity in the town you're you know you were born in, and then it's up to you to go forth and explore. And yeah. I am doing the same thing, you know. And it, it didn't yeah. feel like a choice I made; it felt like something that was very and that yeah. Spirit is very deep inside of me.
1: I really admire that because I don't think I have that. Like maybe part of me. I'm not really sure. But I. So when I was little, my my family like combusted, and then we moved. So I'm from Nova Scotia, like the easternmost part of Canada, and then my mom. We moved out to Victoria, like the westernmost part, and then we went back, and then we went. Came back again. So by the time I was seven, I'd lived on both sides of the country twice, and we moved here to Victoria. And like, granted, it is a spectacular place to call home. Like, we are really fortunate. But I haven't left, and I I didn't go away to school. We happen to have world class schools here, so why would I go? Mm. And I didn't move away for a job. Like, I I kind of played it safe because I think part of me was always looking for this stability that was missing, or at least the the idea of it was missing when I was a child. And so I kind of like hunkered. And then when I meet people who travel a lot or, I mean, I guess I travel a lot now, but, or have moved to go to school or moved to start a life somewhere else, I'm like, whoa, that's amazing. Like I'm really astounded by that and inspired by that. And then I like simultaneously want to go do that. And then I'm kind of like, oh, but I really like it here. So I don't want to leave. Like it kind of stuck.
0: Yeah, interesting. I, I felt that way for a long time until I didn't leave. I left briefly and then came back to, to Christchurch am from. But then there was something deeper inside of me that was like, you, this is a common thing for New Zealanders too, because we have like not a lot of history. Uh, right. there's a lot of like, they call it an OE, overseas experience. So people get to 18, 19, 20, 21 and then. Blast off overseas to see the world and generally go and live in London for a year, right? Kind of go back to the old country and sort of pick up the history that we don't have, right? That's, that's how I read it. And so I, but there was a part of me that was like, you have to go, right? Yeah, it, this is not what you're looking for is not here. And I think it was being gay was part of it. Like, you know, coming from a smallish kind of conservative place didn't feel that aligned. Some yeah. of the ambitions I had were not going to be able to be met there. And so. It was, it was a deep knowing. That's the one thing I've always followed in my life is that deep knowing. And mm-hmm. the deep knowing said, you got to move. And so it was first to Auckland and that felt huge, like go to the big city right. uh, for a couple of years. And then it was to Tokyo and then wherever from there, it was easy mm-hmm. after that. But yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I felt that, that fear of leaving for a long, long time. Yeah. Before doing it, but it was the yeah. deep knowing so I had to. Okay. And I mean, like, look at, look at, look at your genetics. Like, you know, what? your family would have had to endure coming from France.
1: Yeah, in 1603.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, recently. Right, like
1: months on a boat where it wasn't guaranteed that you'd make it.
0: Extraordinary. Yeah. I just think, like, who who were those people? What was their life like that they thought, this is a great option? Were I know. They, like, were they super desperate? I assume they were. Or were they adventurous? Or was it a combination of both?
1: I know it's very interesting because I think there might've been a few things like one, they might've been criminals. So that's always an exciting, I like mm-hmm. to pretend we were maybe like royalty abdicating or something. <laughs> but my mom's like, it's just <laughs> a, like, you know, mm, yeah, mm. yeah we right. are, weasley. Um, but there might've been um like in the parts of France that they came from, it may have also been the result of religious persecution. So like being pushed yeah. out by, that doesn't even make sense. You, so here's the thing that's, it's hard to know because- this is not a bash the English session because um, right. it's just it's just like how it went in the time. But when all was said and done, the the Acadians had been living there for about 100, 150 years, quite well, actually. And then France ceded the property, like the land of what was then Acadie to the English. And long story made short, the English eventually came and deported the French in like a fairly like uncool way but again it was like the 1700s so mostly everything was uncool then and so they split entire families like children from parents and kids like boats of orphaned French children were set loose on the streets of New York City while their parents were put on separate vessels that went to Louisiana because Louisiana was still owned by France and so there was like a real like tearing apart of the fabric of this society Um, and one of the things that happened is that the English took like confiscated all of the wealth belonging to these people and then burned everything, including the churches. And the churches are what, where they held the records of mm-hmm. from where they came from. And so with a lot of my family, it's actually very difficult to trace our history past about 1603 because it was lost. Yeah. And then, and then also because Leblanc is the most common French class <laughs> name in the world. So like, yeah, I could look up some Leblancs in France. Like they typically came from like Brittany and Normandy, but I have no way of knowing which ones are mine. So.
0: Yeah, it's the same in Ireland, actually. Like, Scotland had uh, records for days, but the Irish lost all their records in 1800s sometime.
1: It's a powerful thing to take away someone's history, I think.
0: Oh, it is. They did, uh, when I was in Japan, I mean, you know, we're really getting off track now.
1: (laughs) But it's (laughs) enjoyable.
0: Yeah, it's super enjoyable. uh, Japan tried to do that with uh, Korea at the turn of the century, before the war. They just went in there, you you weren't allowed to speak Korean anymore. They destroyed all the, the palaces, they took all the artifacts. Yeah, it's very cruel. It's very cruel. It's
1: like we in Canada did it to the First Nations, right, with residential schools, and that right. continued until like the eighties, I think.
0: Yeah, super recent.
1: Yeah, and so um, it's a thing that seems harmless because you're not. It doesn't occur as violent, but you're literally you're leaving a large hole, right, and that's hard. Hopefully. Uh, you get to a place where you can start to have the wherewithal to like research that or or choose one. But I think a lot of times people without a history just feel quite lost. Yeah. I think we should choose like a happier topic. Should we I should know just
0: we're two like of the most playful people, and we're like going into the depths of.
1: While I drink from my like Disney princess <laughs> mug. Uh,
0: you became a police officer. Yeah, I did. That's crazy.
1: I know. I was not a very frightening police officer. Let's just be <laughs> clear. So if you haven't yeah, met me in person. Yeah. I I am like five I'd like to say I'm five six, but that's a lie. Like I don't think I ever actually hit five six. I think I like was just under it and rounding up. I'm pretty sure I'm shorter now. Yeah.
0: Why did you why did you become a police officer and then why did you leave?
1: Yeah, those are great questions. So there's two reasons that I became a police officer. One of them is that my uncle, who's like my hero, he walked me down the aisle like I love my uncle. He was an RCMP officer and I just idolized him. So there was that, you know, family legacy. And then the other reason was that I had had a lot of opportunity. Is that there? I don't know if that's the right word. A lot of interactions with police in my childhood, just because, right. because my family, we had, we had a lot of issues with my brother. There often needed to be authorities involved. In fact, it was my job to call them. I was very grateful when they made up 911, because it was a lot shorter to remember.
0: So um, they were, the police were an ally in your mind?
1: Yes, police were good police were help in my mind and, and I, and I wanted to help people. And so I thought that being a police, well, so yeah, so there's like the nice side of it, but then I think there's also the part where I'm like highly righteous and judgmental. And so then being a police officer means you literally can enforce being right. So Mm -hmm. that, that would also be there, but I don't think I would have known about that at the time.
0: Yeah. That's interesting.
1: So there's both. I would say I'm not a cruel person. Like I wasn't, I wasn't drawn by like the power or like, having authority but i i was like there's a right way to do things and we can do it right and if not i can write you a ticket or put you in the jail like that would be appealing to me even now actually um
0: (laughs) it's a very like it's a very moral righteousness isn't it like to be on the right side of the law yes yeah
1: it's a very young perspective right like in our childhoods into our early 20s we tend to be very binary in terms of like black and white thinking of what is right and what is wrong And it's quite interesting because then the reasons I did not stay a police officer are related to these. I remember the first time I had to go to court to testify. I don't even remember what the case was. And before the trial, we went into this side office where we met with the defendant and his legal team. And then we started hammering out some agreement. And I was like, why are we making a deal? I caught him with my physical body, I caught him doing the thing. Why are we cutting a deal? He did the crime and he was caught. And so he should pay for it. And that's not how it works. So this was also the end of my legal, like my career as a lawyer, because I was actually contemplating a career as a lawyer. Um, Oh, man. I am the law. Yeah. So those were some of the reasons I did realize in like my five months, it was only five months because it was part of like a graduated recruitment strategy by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. I started to realize that first of all, shift work did not fit my body and soul. And then I also had started to realize that some things were starting to not horrify me. And I thought that it would probably be better if they always did. Mm. And so those were the reasons at the time. And remember, I was really young. I was like 21, 22, that I did not join. And the funny thing, I don't, it's not funny, I don't know, a thing that I realized when we were in Scotland, like right when we had been in England, we went up to Scotland. And I don't know what made me think of it, but I, it was like I got hit in the side of the head with the realization of why I was not a police officer, like why I left, which was largely that I thought I could help people. And that as a police officer, typically the clients you serve are not looking for the world to be better. Like it is rare that like occasionally you do get to be that hero and you do get to really help someone and, and get them out of something bad into something better. But more often what I and I do remember this, even that that summer of being a police officer was like not being able to comprehend why people were making the choices they were making when we gave them the opportunity to make a better choice and to have a better life. And then you would go back the next week and be like, seriously, why are we here again? And so I just gave up. And 16 years later in Scotland, I realized that I actually do the same work as a coach. But the difference is that the clientele I serve as a coach do want change and they do want life to be better and they do want help. And so it was really fascinating because for some time I like couldn't understand why I became a coach because I became a coach against my own better... like. I fought it hard and long, let it be known, and turned out to be really good at it and really love it. But thought it was like this new path that I was on and it, it, sixteen years later I realized, no, 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 this was the path the whole way.
0: Yeah, there's like a golden thread through everything. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's interesting. It's a, a pretty thankless job. You know, I do a lot of thinking about suicide, not for myself, but you know, looking into suicide and
1: Yeah, especially really in New Zealand. Up,
0: yeah, and a really high suicide level among police. I think it must be that thing that you say where it's just you're trying to do good. And I guess most police officers want to do good that's how they get into it. But it's it looks thankless or it looks like, like you say, you're going into the same things over and over and over again. It doesn't look like anything's changing.
1: And most of the people you're serving, like it is thankless. Like they don't want you there. And so, yeah, I, I'll i never forget the first day I was out in a uniform because that is a feeling that I have never felt since. And I'd never felt before because people like I had not changed, right? All I was doing was wearing like some very freshly ironed, quite uncomfortable things and a bulletproof vest.
0: Very clean, brand new.
1: Yeah. Very. very, (laughs) But you were never unnoticed. Mm. And it was very interesting. You could tell very quickly, especially with children, I noticed like Because I liked police officers. I still do. There's some bad ones for sure. But I think the majority of people, hopefully, that become a police officer, I think are the people like me who want to make a difference. But you could see with children when like how they relate to a police officer. So whether they ran up and were like, can I see your gun? You're like, that's a bad idea. But they always want to see the gun. Or they're like pulling on you and like, hi, and they're excited to talk to you versus the ones who would like maybe hide behind their parents or like look at you suspiciously. I'm like, oh, I know what you've been taught. And I know the world in which you reside. And you will be right about that, right? Like, I'm not going to be a
0: hero to you. That's why I was curious about your upbringing, because in a lot of those families that have a tumultuous environment, it can be a real anti-police, anti-cop, anti-authority feeling, but you didn't pick up on that.
1: I didn't. And never were we... Like, it was a case where we requested assistance and they came. Yeah. So, I mean, for all the tumultuousness in my family, like, none of it was necessarily malevolent or deviant or criminal it was just too much for the family unit to handle and we couldn't handle it alone
0: how so yeah is, they were good guys how's your relationship with your family now so i just had a week with my family and it's, uh, i find it really tough like i find it yeah. i find it wonderful and at the same time i find it really tough for a million different reasons yeah and a lot of times as a coach i feel a little bit embarrassed that i'm not more that my relationship with my family is not more enlightened for one of a better yeah. word, and I'm learning to like forgive myself for that more and more because I realize that it's really tough. It's really really tough. Yeah, and especially with parents. So I know you've had some issues, you know, like you've mentioned yeah. a couple of them here. So how is it with your family now, and how do you relate to it?
1: That's a great question. Depends on the day. No, just kidding. Um, well, I, that just reminds me of like that Ram Das quote. Like if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your family. Like Good luck. Good luck to you.
0: That's so I'm terms- like, challenge accepted. And then yeah. like, also like, ah, so right. And I'm annoyed that it's right.
1: Always right. And I yeah. think like what I, I love about that is like, it doesn't... So I'm raised Catholic. I actually still think that, like, I, I actually appreciate Catholicism as a beautiful story and a beautiful... Like, I, I think it's beautiful. So I call myself a lowercase c Catholic. Uh, I don't think that the Vatican actually recognizes that as a distinction, but whatever. Anyway... I always think of, there was this one story that we always would hear it every year in church and like in catechism, which is like church school for Catholic kids. And, and there was a story, the story where Jesus turns the water into wine. And so they're like, basically at a wedding and they run out of wine. And Mary, like Jesus' mom is like, dude, can you do something about this? And then he snaps at her. That is not in the Bible. But in my opinion, when I read it, it sounds like he's snapping, like a bit of a sullen, like, mom, back off. (laughs) Um, And I always, it always makes me laugh. I'm like, if Jesus could lose his patience with Mary, then I think we're all okay. Like, it's fine.
0: You should start a show where you reenact Bible chapters (laughs) and like put your own spin on them and go, that was definitely him snapping. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) I just think, like, we're all human. That was a human moment. And then, and then he did it anyways, like, fine, here's the water turned into wine. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so in terms of my family, there's so many like layers to it. So I come from a small, like nuclear family, like just my mom and my brother and I, and then by the time I was seven, my brother was in foster care. So I kind of was raised like a sing- like an only child, right. but even though he was in foster care, uh, my mom fought really hard to keep like our family sense. Like, so my brother was around, we were in the same schools. Uh, my brother was my hero growing up and he's really struggled with like, he might listen to this, but um, he's really struggled with like mental health and all the things that go with that and like the, the things that caused him to be in foster care in the first place. So there were difficulties and I could speculate on them, but there's not really much point. So then ultimately, like he ended up fairly removed from the family, especially as an adult. And so the same as you were like, I wish I could say this beautiful story, either that of a perfect family, because that's an inspiration, which I don't think it actually is, or that like, I could point to like, and it was difficult, but then I have mended all the fences, but that wouldn't be true either. And so I think it's kind of like, like the ebb and flow of nature where there are times where. I've been really close and able to create relationships that I that I think empower me or bring out the best in me and the other members of my family, like my mom and my brother. And to be honest, most of the time, that is not the case. And uh, so part of the journey has been learning that sometimes the best way to be in family is to be away from family or to have that space. And because it actually allows everyone to be a better version of themselves until maybe such a time in the future where we can come back together. And co-create something that, that is more, I don't know, better, more better. Yeah. If that makes
0: sense. And
1: and that's like with my very like immediate family, with my extended family, I'm actually quite close. Um, And on my, the side of the family that I grew up with, it's a very small family. I have an aunt and an uncle who I view as second parents. I have two cousins who I view as older brothers. I love all of them dearly. Like on my birthday a couple of weeks ago, everyone came down. One of my cousins who's in Ontario, I don't get to see that often, had his family. So we had everyone at our house and it's just always like a fun, easy place to be. And I I, I often wish that my immediate family felt that easy. That just is what it is. I've also gotten to know my father. Like as an adult, I've created a relationship with him. And the older I get you know, I think the older we get and that hopefully the more altitude we are able to have about what went on when we were a kid, whatever it was, the more understanding there is. And the more like, I understand, I literally understand my mom has always said, you're just like your father. And I don't know that she meant that in a positive way. And, but the older I get, I'm like, no, I really am. Like that is fascinating because I did not grow up with this person. Yeah. And so to see like verbal or physical tics that are like my dad, when I wouldn't have learned them from him. Or I, I think in some ways, some of the ways in which I view the world or myself, or like my dad has a good sense of humor and he does, lets a lot slide off his back. And I think, thank God that I was a lot like my father in terms of getting through my childhood.
0: Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Um, where do you sort of sit on boundaries? Like I like what you said, because I, I, I'm sort of starting to agree that you do. There is a benefit in, in separating yourself just that whole concept of the reason your parents can push your buttons is because they installed them. So it's very hard to grow if you're within the environment that you were created with all the buttons and the triggers. So yeah. I think there is the value of creating a boundary, creating some space, finding yourself, finding your own truth, finding what you believe, and then rebuilding those relationships Yeah, uh, from that place slowly and intentionally, I would say.
1: Totally. So you yeah, absolutely. I don't always like the word boundaries because I think what happens, at least for me, and the way that I and most of the people that I know who are driven work is like we hear boundary and we're like, cool, I'm going to build the mother of all walls with a moat and alligator. Like, so, but it's, and so I like it to be a bit more fluid than that. So, because it requires that I not make a rule and I'm really good at making rules and following them. And the older I've gotten, the more I realize that that. It just gets me off the hook of having to be present and make a choice now and now and now. And so for me, it's really like just choosing, does this serve me now or does it not serve me now? And I think, I mean, my understanding that it's, is that it's not until our thirties that we actually actively start differentiating from our parents. Like that's actual normal human development seems late, but that's just what it is. And I kind of realized a few years ago, like I have a tendency to be a people pleaser makes sense. We could go through the whole psychology of it. I just can literally close my eyes and see cute little Bay making everything good and copacetic and happy and doing great and being cute and making people happy. And it mostly worked. And there were a few places where it didn't work as well. And those were like the really core places at home. And I just really saw a few years ago and like, oh my God, like I really was under the mistaken belief, like literally until I was 36 years old, that it was my job to make you happy. Mm. And my mission And I was failing at that despite all my best intentions and and making everyone else happy. And to realize like, I can't resolve that for myself in this same relationship. So I need some space because the dance that we are complicit in is set. (laughs) Like it is a very set piece of choreography and neither of us can change outside of that. And so um, having to like step outside of that and actively uncouple so as to be able to go, it is not my job to make other people happy. And I'll be fully honest, I always want to. I want to, like, I want people to like me. That's why it's funny to hear like, I'm like, oh man, there's some people that don't and like, oh, that is so hard for me to be with because they're wrong and they should like me and whatever. Yeah, so I think that that space of like, I mean, if you do need to have a boundary, that's cool. But just make sure you get on your horse and like survey it frequently.
0: Yeah. Like keep the choice there.
1: Yeah. Because that's uh, where the growth is, I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's so nuanced. This is like a whole, you do a whole hour just on this, I think, because it's so interesting. And I think having the, the strict boundary to start with is probably helpful. And then yes. then moving more towards choice as you get more confident in yourself. Um, I
1: think, I think worth pointing to is that I think what people normally do is we create a strict boundary because that is helpful at first, right? Like I'm going to not have candy in the house. And then we just stop examining that. Right. And, and then because of that, it's like, we, our power becomes circumstantial. Like I'm fine as long as there's no candy in the house, or I am fine as long as I do not connect with you at all. And I think, yeah, I think that, I think we are much more brilliant, powerful, and smarter and able to like, co-create than that, like so that if we create that rule, come back and examine it and be like, does this serve me now? And yeah.
0: Let's uh, I just looked at the time. We're we've raced through 50 minutes already. I want to talk about your work a little bit mm-hmm. and your coaching practice and the cool name of your company, Wonderland. Why do you do what you do now? Like what's the what do you think the world needs and, and why do you what keeps you going and doing this work?
1: Well, so When I was, I'm going to go back a little, when I was a kid, I really loved the realm of magic and like fantasy, which makes sense, I think, period, like for children, I think people, but uh, especially when my real world was not ideal. And there seemed to be some uh, limitations in my real world, whereas in the realm of magic and fantasy, there were none and anything was possible. Mm. And so... Um, it's an easy place to escape. And I think um I think that's healthy, and I think that helps create um creativity and um, like a possibility mindset. And I think that that's most children, and some people may have more reason than others to remain there or to want to stay there. And I think that we start to grow out of that and we teach people out of that. And I have noticed this when I was in high school that like people ask, I I trained as a professional dancer. My whole life in my teens was aimed at me being a ballet dancer, which is hilarious because like I don't have the body for it, but I was determined to force it to happen. So that's the other side. But then people would say, no, but really, what are you going to do? I'm like, well, no, really, I'm going to do this thing. Yeah, but I mean, you can't make a living out of that. And so I think we start inadvertently putting limitations on people and then we buy them and then we make this world smaller.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, like that's not realistic. And we, we encourage children and even young adults to dream until a certain point where we're like, okay, now get real. Mm-hmm. Now is when life gets real and difficult and hard. And the truth is, life was real difficult and hard the whole time. But that I think believing in magic. And when I say magic, I mean, whatever you want to call it, Like it's really just possibility is what makes this whole thing worthwhile. It's why we've made it to the moon. Or if we haven't actually made it to the moon, then like we've been able to create one hell of a story and get people to believe in it. Like either way, right? Like innovation, ideas, possibility, the possibility for things to be awesome, the possibility for us to not burn out our planet, possibility for peace. Like I just really believe in that possibility. And I think if I hadn't, I wouldn't be here today. And so... That's why my company is called Wonderland and Company, because I want to remind people that it is important to believe in, in things and hopefully in things that are better than simply because they could be.
0: And, and how do you do that? How do you encourage people to do that?
1: Well, first we start asking them what they want. And most of the time people have like a really like polite, like acceptable version of what they want. And then lots of reasons why they can't have anything more than that. And so I have to like work with people to get unreasonable, like we're just making believe here. Like no one's going to make you do it. Like, what do you want? Like what, if you wanted anything in the world, what would you want from like what you want in your kitchen to what you want in the world your children are going to inherit? Like, what do you want? Um, And then play that loud enough until eventually they're like, I want, I do want it. And then we have to dismantle all of the scaffolding that is held up like the current belief of how it has to go. Like how it has to go is just that people in the U.S. are going to keep shooting each other. That's just how it has to go because it keeps going that way. Well, I, I called no, like that's just not good enough for me. So, so I invite people to to dream bigger than that and then start to actively pull down those old stories and understand where they came from, that they're inherited either by your like family or the community or the nation or the world. And then choose the one that you actually want and then start creating that.
0: And what does the magic look like to you?
1: Oh man, when somebody, there's so many things like part of it is when somebody steps into owning their leadership, which sounds like an unmagical thing, but I actually think it's very magical because most Mm. of us will abdicate our leadership, our personal leadership, viewing it as a position and not as a quality. And if it's a, a quality, we can grow it. And when somebody who has kind of given up or is just really frustrated, which is usually how I find a lot of people, starts to see possibility. There's like this moment where they're, they almost, because this is what I did, where somebody kept saying, what do you want? And finally, I like said something that I'm like, there, there's the challenge, make that happen. And then there's this moment where they kind of are like, wait, do you mean I could get that? Like there's this little ember that flicks itself onto the fire and you literally see them be like, hang on, is it possible that I could do that thing? And then you start to see them re-examine who they be in relationships, whether it's with their dear ones around them or the people that they employ or that employ them, or like you see them start to take care of themselves physically, or you see them start to do things that seem totally unreasonable or make their friends question their sanity or, and they don't have to be huge things because sometimes it doesn't take much to scare the people around us really. But it's when they start remembering um, who they are and, and actively become a part of their life instead of like sitting back and watching it while trying to like flick the channel. That's so amazing to me when people start to live a life that they would be proud to have in a history book, mm. which is amazing. And,
0: and, do you, and do you ever hear someone say something that they want? You're like, Oh, that might be a bit of a stretch.
1: Honestly, no.
0: no <laughs> that's, like, your, that's why you're magical. I love that.
1: Yeah. Like I, I've, nobody has said something to me that is like, awkward. I might think like, okay, well that's probably going to take a lot of work. So let's get started. Um, or, but like, I, I literally don't know what somebody could tell me that like, I don't think is, po- I think it's possible. It might take time. It might be difficult. And in fact, it's likely going to take more time and be more difficult than I think, because I'm always like, yes, let's do it. And I call that idealism. And it might be naivete, as I've recently had reflected to me in my own way of being. But But I do think that all things can be achieved. Because if like, Gandhi led the English out of India peacefully, like, we went to the moon, or not, I think we did, right? Like, we have done far more incredible things than I think most of us are typically looking at. So I just am like, yeah, it's possible. You're going to be hard-pressed to get me to not think it's possible.
0: Yeah, it's only in not thinking that it's possible. I mean, there's just all a limited ability to be with the infinite, right? The infinite possibilities.
1: Totally, and I mean... We love those sto- We always love those stories where somebody makes the impossible possible, and then we assume there's something really special about them. I'm like, well, the thing that is special about them is that it was impossible. So they just kept going until they did it, and it looked different.
0: It's so inspiring. Where can people find out more about you?
1: Uh, they can find out more about me uh, at wonderlandandcompany.com. So you have to have the magic and the business in the same place. Yes. Yeah, that's where, or on Facebook or Instagram. All
0: yeah, you, you do uh, Magic Mondays with Bay. I think around the same time as this show <laughs> normally. But uh, that's always awesome. So that's a great place, I think, for people to get to know more of your experience, who interact with you easily. We yep. be to follow you on Facebook and then join into that live stream on Mondays, right?
1: Yeah, and ask all the questions.
0: Uh, what's your dark side and how do you embrace it?
1: Oh, God. How much time do we have? We need <laughs> more time.
0: Yeah, the uh, next hour.
1: My dark side... One of them would be, um, well, I kind of just alluded to it. So there's like possibility and everything's possible and I can do this. And like the optimism that I think is really one of the beautiful things of driven people. um, The dark side is like naivete. And and then when things are harder or take longer, just being like, I'm just done. Like becoming very discouraged by the world around us and then just backing away from it. Until we play and live in a smaller and smaller bubble, right? I think that's one of them. I think, I think I'm a very devoted person to whatever it is I'm devoted to. And that can be a lot of things. And I think that that can often switch into fixation and obsession to unhealthy degrees. So, um, just like the rigidity of having tunnel vision kind of like, This is the book that I'm writing, right? About like the cost of being driven and the ultimate cost. I think the darkest side is that I could miss my entire life in my driving rush to create it.
0: Yeah. Hmm. How do you embrace it? How do you embrace your dark side? So, you know, with your dark side, you can avoid it and or else you could just lean right into it and kind of make it you or you can find a way to go, hey, this is a part of me and I want to embrace it.
1: Well, that's been part of my work, right? Because part of like the black and whiteness of this way of being is like, oh, part of me isn't perfect. Excuse me, I've got to annihilate it. But you can't annihilate your shadow without annihilating yourself. So I think the largest part of like the last decade has been in owning that part and like appreciating it. I think this is why, I'll pretend this is why the book isn't done yet. It's total bullshit. But like (laughs) one of the reasons is I didn't know how to end it. I could end it with like, I guess you're hooped. Hmm. Like, And then I, I finally saw it. I finally saw like there is actually a way that you can be driven and learn to appreciate the ride without getting rid of being driven, right? This is the normal thing is like, well, I'll just get rid of this part of me. That's not good. Well, that's not going to work. But but oh, there is a way to actually learn to enjoy the fact that you have a desire that is astronomically huge and ever growing, like a black hole, and that you can learn to enjoy the anticipation and be present in each moment while also being like, oh, here I go, sprinting off down the road after a rabbit. Like, it's there's actually a way to be with all those parts, and that can be learned and practiced because driven people are amazing. And people who believe in magic are amazing if they don't like disappear off down rabbit holes for all of time.
0: Yeah. Great place to finish. Bay hey, thank you. Thank you for being love and light. Thank you for bringing magic into the world and keep doing what you're doing. Thanks Nathan. Welcome. Thank you guys. Thanks for always for uh, tuning in. hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, go and check out Bay all over social media and if you know someone that would enjoy this episode or uh, you think would enjoy getting to know Bay, you know, reach out or share this episode with them and I will love you forever. Thank you guys. Have an amazing week and weekend. I'll be back next week with episode number 91. That's was The Nathan Seward Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life.